So good to be with you this morning, be with the church family today. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open or your devices open and so you can follow along in First Thessalonians end of 2 and beginning of 3. Silence your cell phones or devices if you're using those. And before we get to the text of Scripture, I want us to think about our hearts today. Before we come to the Word of God, I want you to think about yourself and where you are. And I want to have you, as a framework, think about the question, uh, what do you want? I don't mean, like, if you're going to Taco Tree after the service, whether you want, like, nachos or uh, chicken tacos without sour cream, taco pluses. That, that's not what I'm getting at. I, I'm, I'm getting at, what, is it, what are your desires? What is it that, that, that you want? If your life is executing out what it is that you want and desires, then you can, what you want and desire, then you can actually look at your life and answer that question. But sometimes what we want or what we desire and what we're actually doing, executing in life are, are two different things. So it's, a, it's a, actually a really good question to ask ourselves, what, what is it that I want? What is in my heart? What are the desires of my heart? Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of your life. Your life, the wellspring, the origin, what, what is happening in your life comes out of the desires, the longings, the wantings in your heart. And so we're called to guard our hearts. And we're going to be looking today in just a few moments at what Paul's heart is. And Paul's heart is very much after Christ and the things of Christ. And so I'm praying for me and for you that our hearts would be shifting to whatever degree your heart and my heart are not after Christ and the things of God. We're going to look at a variety of things that probably no one here, when I ask that question, what do you want? What do you desire? Probably what's going on in Paul's heart, we're going to look at it in a few moments. Probably not one of us here would say, yep, yep, yeah, that's, that's where I am. And so I believe God wants to change us today. Not that he wants to make us exactly like the Apostle Paul, a church planter, an evangelist, but he wants our hearts to beat hard after Christ. What is it that you want? James K.A. Smith writes, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. This is what God is getting at in Proverbs when he speaks about the heart. This is what the scriptures are getting at all over the place. The greatest commandment to love God with all of our heart, the epicenter of who we are. What is it that you want? So sometimes we can look at our lives and we see what we want when we're accomplishing what we want. And a few guys here accomplished something uh, pretty extraordinary. Maybe you uh, heard about them uh, in the news. 
The Cannonball Run. Anybody remember that movie, The Cannonball Run? Anybody here? Okay, three of you, again, remember that? Um, you may not be familiar that the, with this uh, journey, this race. It goes all the way back to 1915, where you race from Manhattan to Southern California in a car. And it's a race against the clock. And the first person who did it in 1915, it took him sometime over 11 days uh, in this incredibly old-looking car. So these three guys, uh, Arnie, Toman, Doug, uh, Tabit, Berkeley, Chadwick, this is their desire. This is what's in their hearts. This is what they, they, they live for. This is what they love, like Cannonball Run, like it's their dream. Uh, Washington Post, it's all over the internet if you want to look at this. Washington Post article, December 6, 2019. It was a lifelong goal ever since I was a kid, Arnie Toman says, the driver in, in this photo. Uh, one of his, his uh, buddies, I forget which one, if it's the one in the back seat, I think it's the co-pilot here. He says, it's an honor to be ranked with the people I grew up admiring and reading about. People who, who held the record of the cannonball run. Don't just meet your heroes, beat your heroes. That's his philosophy. That's his desire of his heart. And, and they executed it. So on November 10th, 2019, they hopped in this car. It was a Mercedes disguised to look like a Honda. They hopped in their car in New York at 1 o'clock in the morning. And can you believe it? In 27 hours, in 25 minutes, they were in Redondo Beach. This is a picture of them on the drive. You notice the guy in the back with the scope. You know, wonder what he's looking for. Um, I, I don't think it's for a place to eat. Their car had uh, multiple gas tanks, like 60 gallons of fuel. So when they stop, all kinds of computer equipment, some of which they disclosed and some of which uh, they didn't, they made a photo of, of their final thing. So their max speed on their journey was 193 miles per hour. Now, this is what's most amazing to me. That's not as amazing to me as how long did they stop? Do you see that? 22 minutes and 33 seconds from Manhattan to Redondo Beach. How many have ever driven to Southern California and only stopped for 22 minutes? We haven't as a family. We, we have not done that. They stopped for 22 minutes. I didn't see the bathroom in the car, but I, I don't know how that worked. I don't know how they did that. So this is a dash of their car. I'll read to you a little bit of this, this article. Um, I, I, why am I talking about this? I, I'm trying to bring to the surface of, of what's in people's hearts. A, a couple things. This is what's in their hearts. This is what's in these guys' hearts. For 2,825.3 miles, the trio dodged highway patrol officers, avoided roadside deer, and rode through 13 states in 27 hours and 25 minutes. They crushed the previous record by nearly an hour and a half. They didn't get pulled over once, except after the run on their way to celebrate with a late night meal. They didn't get a ticket. when They got, they got pulled over because their license plate was, was uh, ajar. Uh, on November 10th, they, they got in this uh, souped up Mercedes in the Red Ball Garage in Manhattan. This is the traditional starting point. Their destination, the Portofino Hotel in Redondo Beach, which is customary finish for the illicit Cannonball Run Challenge. This is something done with military precision, said uh, Tabit. 
a lifelong racer who sells collector and exotic cars in Cleveland. But they stress their use of caution and restraint while clock clocking triple digit speeds. They typically drove their fastest a top speed of 193 uh, uh, on long, empty highways, slowing down for congestion. They also endeavored to pass cleanly without surprising others. It's courteous, but also strategic, Tabit said. Driving too aggressively would anger the other drivers who might dial highway patrol on them, putting the entire run in jeopardy. And overcoming at high speed after freaking someone out would mean likely death for them and the other drivers. The car was further modified, a cooler, cutting out part of the back seat to make room for the cooler and supplies, 60 gallons of gasoline. It goes on and on. Looked like a Honda. They had a hunting scope mounted on the roof to help detect roadside deer. These guys thought about a lot of things. Pretty amazing. Pretty crazy story. Pretty illegal story. Why am I talking about it? They actually were living out and executing the desires of their heart. This is what they're about. This is, this is what they love. What do you want? What do you desire? I want to suggest that apart from Christ, whether it's a cannonball run victory, whether it's a Super Bowl victory, whether it's becoming the top person in your office, all of these things are aiming too low to be something that brings durable joy to us. Were they happy? Are they gloating? Is there, are they all over online? Are they? Yes. Is this going to satisfy the longings in them? No. It's not. Who are you? What is it that you desire? What is it that you want? The Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, this letter to the First Thessalonians, he gives us a glimpse of what he wants and what he desires in Philippians chapter 3. He's describing, you don't need to turn there, we're going to just be here briefly, but he's describing his previous life as a persecutor of Christians, as this zealous religious man. It was his identity is what he cherished, being of the tribe of Benjamin, being a Pharisee, being all of these things in this religious organization. And then after he talks about all of that, he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So those things that I desired and longed for and were living out, I consider them now loss. They don't matter. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, these things that I was living for, these things that I was living out. He now considers them rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus and gaining him and abiding in Christ. This is what he longs for. This is what his desire is. So as we continue our journey through this book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see in today's passage part of what Paul's heart is. And not just Paul's heart, but the ministry team of Silas and Timothy. And I want us to be thinking about our own hearts. Again, the point here isn't that we become church planters and missionaries, but that our hearts, to the degree that God would will, that our hearts are in alignment with Paul's heart, who is beating so hard for Christ Jesus. Are we longing and desiring for the right things, or are we selling ourselves short? So let's turn to the text here. Let's begin looking at verse 17, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul writes there in, in this one verse, 17, he says, uh, But brothers, when we were torn away from you, 
when we, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, this ministry team that planted this church in Thessalonica, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. This is a strong statement, a strong sentence in verse 17. Paul is longing to be with the Thessalonians and he's letting them know by the writing of this letter that this was an involuntary separation. We didn't bail on you. We didn't leave you. We didn't just, just, just leave you in the dust. In fact, you are in our hearts. Now, we're not told precisely, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. There's like 50 different views on what tore them away from Thessalonica. We're not told what it is, so it's not that important. What, what is clear is that it was involuntary. And all three of them, maybe it was in the middle of the night, whatever, they had to leave. And the Thessalonians are like, where is this team? We love these people. How did they betray us? How did they... We, we were torn away from you and, and not in, in heart. And we were longing to make every effort to see you. So what does Paul want? One of the things that he wants as we look at this passage is he wants to maintain intimate fellowship with Christians. He wants to maintain leadership and guidance, he and Silas and Timothy, over these folks. So, again, it's so easy to just move past these verses. Okay, what does that have to do with my life? Do you have relationships with other Christians that if you are separated, that you are longing to be with them? That you miss them desperately. That they have been speaking the gospel and encouraging you in your life. They have been speaking to you themes of the gospel and blessing you. And telling you it's going to be okay when you've messed up again and again and again. That Jesus paid for that sin and you are forgiven. And let's move forward with hope. Do you have people in your life like that? This is how we should respond to reading the scriptures. Not just, okay, yeah, they, they really wanted to be there and, and, and they weren't. Part of the heart of Paul and Timothy and Silas and part of the hearts of the believers in Thessalonica were to be together. F.F. Bruce writes this, they felt like parents who had lost their children. We probably could have lots of testimonies here of of testimonies of of like when you actually lost your kids when they were little. Anybody have stories like that? I, I have one. I'll tell you one. So my uh, younger son is, is really um, ambitious and bold and, and uh, go, go out there. And, and I remember the first time we took him to the airport, you know, where he wasn't like in a backpack or in a car seat or whatever. First time where he could get loose from us. And he got loose. And he's gone. He's gone. He's like, I don't remember how old. How old was, where are you? Hon? How old was he? I lost my wife. He was two. I was going to say he was like five or something. So that's why I had to ask. He was two. He's gone. We're at the airport. I mean, we're, we're, we're longing to be with him. It felt like about three hours. I think it was, how long was it? Ten minutes? Five minutes? Ten minutes. I mean, we are longing to be with him. Where is he? We're desperate. This is how Paul and Timothy and Silas feel because of the Christian relationships, the intimacy, the fellowship, the bonds that they have with the church at Thessalonica. They felt like parents who had lost their children. And Paul's communicating that in the letter. 
This is how F.F. Bruce translates that verse, verse 17. We bestirred ourselves the more abundantly with great longing to see you face to face again. This is how he translates verse 17. This is a really good translation. So what does this have to do with our lives? Do we have this kind of fellowship? I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. I'm saying this so that by grace, your longings, your desires, what you want would include close fellowship with other ladies, ladies, with other men, men, with with other believers. Where we have this. A passage that pastors love to quote. I'm going to quote it here. Hebrews 10.25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And pastors love to quote this or often quote this. I'm not trying to criticize us because people skip out on fellowship. They skip out on Sunday mornings. And and that's an appropriate way to use this passage. But let's go beyond that and, and, and read what, what, what is going on here. The day is approaching. The time is short. It's urgent. Things are, things are dark in the land, in the world. And, and we need to live with a sense of urgency. So get together and encourage one another. This passage isn't just about Sunday mornings. It's about meetings at, at, at coffee shops and early in the morning in homes and at work and on campus. And, and wherever it is that two or three are gathered, let us encourage one another. What is it that you want? Paul, Timothy, and Silas, and the Thessalonians want to be together. Not just because they like cannonball run cars or because they want to watch football together or because they like to mountain bike. Those things are all fine. But their relationships were far beyond that. And they're speaking redemptive truths into each other's lives and encouraging each other so that they can live joyfully each day. To maintain fellowship, to maintain intimate fellowship with Christians. That's the first thing what Paul wants. The second thing we're going to see in verse 18 is to overcome Satan's roadblocks. Let's look at verse 18 uh, together. Back to our text. It says in, in verse 18, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul did, again and again. But Satan stopped us. Interesting here that Paul is able to discern that Satan is behind this separation. John Stott writes this. He said, God God gave Paul spiritual discernment to distinguish between providential and demonic happenings. So one of the things that Paul longs for is to overcome Satan's roadblocks, to overcome obstacles to fellowship, obstacles to abiding in Christ, Obstacles to make my main longing not this or that or the other thing, but to make my main longing to know and to love Christ, to love my neighbor as myself, to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit because of my relationship with God. We need to overcome Satan's roadblocks. It's one of the things that, that, that Paul wants. Let's continue on. Look at verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope? Our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Lots of emphasis in this letter, 1 Thessalonians, about the coming of Jesus. Here it's mentioned. 
Let's back it up again since that, that we can just miss that. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? What is it? Is it not you? And, and if we, our translations were better, if we had a Texas translation, this is plural. Is it not y'all? Is it not you, Thessalonians? That's what this is saying. This you is plural. Is it not you, church in Thessalonica? Indeed, you all are our glory and our joy. What's going on here? Paul, Paul's realizing, you know what? I may not get back to Thessalonica. But guess what? It, it, it's okay. We're going to overcome the satanic roadblock. And no matter what happens in the new heavens and the new earth, after Jesus comes, what is going to be my glory and my joy? It is that our ministry team made disciples out of these folks in Thessalonica, and we're going to be together, and that's going to be part of the dimension of the joy in Paul and Timothy and Silas's heart, that they were spiritual parents to these folks in Thessalonica who impacted the whole region of Macedonia. So what does that have to do with you and me? Well, we're not church planters, most of us here. Maybe one or two of us are in the future. But we are all called to make disciples on campus, at work, in our families, in our homes. Are we longing? Are we longing to make disciples and to experience reunion joy? That's what I'm calling it. In the new heavens and new earth, reunion joy that Paul and Timothy and Silas are going to be reunited after the coming of Christ with these spiritual Children, God is the one who made them believers, but he used Paul and Timothy and Silas. And there's going to be reunion joy in the new heaven and the new earth over that. What do you want? Paul wants to experience that joy in the new heavens and the new earth. And his whole life is about making disciples. It's the mission he's given to every Christian. Not just the pastors, not just the missionaries. But to all of us in the everyday stuff of life to make disciples. And part of our deficiency of our flesh is not only to long for the new heavens and new earth, but to long for reunion joy. God wants to use you and your testimony and your understanding of the gospel to bless and encourage and make disciples of others. Fellowship and sharing the gospel with those yet to believe. What is it that you want? What is it that you desire? That's verses 19 and 20. Let's, let's move into chapter 3. Look at the first few verses here. We're going to be done very soon. Just a few more verses. So in verses 1 through 3. So when we could stand it no longer. I mean, just this agony of separation. This is how close they are. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. Now, if you, you've are familiar, we've, we just went through the book of Acts. Athens is a dangerous place for Christians. So we could paraphrase this. Uh, we thought it best to be left by ourselves uh, in Vegas, in Amsterdam. We didn't really want to be here. This is a place that is hostile to the gospel and to Christians. But our longing, we couldn't stand it any longer. So we, and I'm taking this as 
Silas and Paul is the we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. Some people think it's just Paul and it's like a, a royal we or something. So we sent Timothy, verse 2, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. They needed help. They needed a shepherd. So, so we're sending Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Verse 3, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. So there are trials going on in the lives of every Christian. And this is a new church. And they are going through trials. And so what does Paul want? He wants to strengthen believers during their trials. He doesn't want them taken out and unsettled by the trials. He doesn't want them blown away. He doesn't want his ministry and his preaching of the gospel to be in vain. What does this have to do with us? All of scripture is full, full with what, I, what many call, I've used the phrase before, a fallen condition focus. We are fallen people. We don't have the right longings. We don't have the right wants. We don't have the want desires. We don't, we don't have the right desires naturally within us. Part of what God wants to use us for is to strengthen others during their trials. You know, last Sunday morning, it was early, it was dark, I was, it was dark outside, it was dark in my soul. And just at the right moment, um, I, I normally have my, my iPad, which um, I, I used to read my Bible a lot on my iPad, and I normally have the thing like, so I can't get a text, I can't get a beep, although I'm not skilled, and sometimes I, the things still come through, and, <clears throat> and then I sin and get angry at myself. Anybody like that? And um, so... I intended to like be undisturbed and have my iPad off, but I got this little beep and it, w- it was an email, someone saying, hey, I'm, I'm prompted by God to pray for you right now. And I, I just, I needed that encouragement. We need people who pray for us. We need people who come by our house, even if they're not on one level welcome. We call it being lovingly intrusive. We need friends who are lovingly intrusive in our lives and will come by our house and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And, 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 and here's what it is. I, I need to encourage you about something. Paul and Silas don't want to be alone in Athens. But their fellowship and their intimacy for the Thessalonian church is so strong. We are sending you, Timothy, and we want you, we want Timothy to encourage you in these trials. We don't want the trials to take you out. Again, we're not told exactly the details. We don't think it's physical persecution, but it's other kinds of persecution we're not really told. I think often the scripture doesn't give us details, so this is incredibly relevant to wherever we are. So if you're thinking, well, I'm not, this is only for persecution for righteousness sake, and my trials and struggles aren't really persecution for righteousness sake, so this, you you are overthinking things if that's where you're going. Whatever the source of the trials, we are to strengthen one another as family, as brothers and sisters. Matthew Henry writes, it is the devil's design to hinder the good fruit and effect of the preaching of the gospel. Paul doesn't want that good fruit and effect of the preaching of the gospel to be diminished. And so he sends Timothy to encourage them in the midst of their trials. 
We need to be in relationships with one another so we even know what the other people's trials are in our lives. So that's where, if we go back to the Hebrews passage, in some ways it is not mostly about Sunday mornings. It's mostly about those times where we're sharing our lives together with other believers in more intimate settings and smaller settings, the setting of the 12, if you will. In Jesus' ministry. The setting of the disciples, not the setting of the preaching to the 5,000. Is, is where we not, not need to neglect. The, you know what I'm trying to say. Not, you know, what am I trying to say? Thank you. Thank you. That's primarily what it's talking about. You need someone that knows your trials so they can come by your house, so they can send the email. Last thing I'm going to hit today is, is um, in the end of verse 3. To make known that the trials and sufferings of Christians are predestined and purposeful. This is radical, but this is just what the text says. And a pastor's job, a servant's job, is to serve the word, not to preach in a way that's entertaining or, or what I think you'll like so that I'll get 10,000 likes. It's to serve the word. So look at what the word says. We're at the end of verse three. You know, Thessalonians, quite well that we were destined for them. We, so this isn't just the Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy and by extension, all Christians, we are destined for trials and tribulations and sufferings. I mean, this isn't what we put underneath our signs, Cornerstone Community Church. We are destined for trials, sufferings, and tribulations. We don't put it on our sign. And we shouldn't, right? People will be confused. But it's true. It's what the Bible teaches in the book of Acts, it says, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Paul is teaching hardcore, unpleasant theology here. You know quite well that we were destined for them, for these trials, for these distresses, for these distresses brought about by outward circumstances, by afflictions, however your translation has it. Matthew Henry writes this, the apostles were so far from flattering people with an expectation of worldly prosperity in Christianity that on the contrary, they told them plainly, they must count upon trouble in the flesh. And herein, they followed the example of their great master, the author of our faith. Now, I don't want to go too far here. We shouldn't long for trials. We don't wish them. We don't pray for them. We don't desire them like some false religions that we're going to get like extra granny bonus points if we go through X, and so we should even inflict pain on ourselves so that God gives us extra money. That is not found in the New Testament. But what is found in the New Testament is you are going to have trouble. Jesus said it himself, John 16. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. There's the news we like to hear. Here's the news we don't like to hear. In this world, you will have trouble. You will, but take heart. 
I have overcome the world, and you are going to overcome your trials and tribulations. In fact, they're going to strengthen you. In fact, they're going to be made redemptive in your life. In fact, they're an important part of making you into the man or woman of God that I want you to be. But guess what? You may need some Timothys who who lovingly, intrusively come into your life to say, hey, here's what's going on. It's going to be okay. Or to rebuke you or whatever needs to be done to love you. So it's a controversial passage. We're just about done, but I'm going to get into it here. Colossians 1.24, Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's saying, again, we don't have an English. We can't see that these yous are plural, but most, many of them are plural. I rejoice in what was suffered for you all, Colossians. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking. Why am I in Colossians 124? I'm coordinating, I'm connecting Colossians 124 with 1 Thessalonians 3, 3b, which says, you are destined for these trials. In these tribulations and these sufferings, what is still lacking? This isn't a popular truth. The, the truth here is that there is a quotient. There is a God-ordained quotient of trials and tribulations, and Paul is filling them up. It's part of his plan in this broken world. This doesn't have to do with Christ's afflictions on the cross. This has to do with this, the afflictions and the sufferings of Christians in the church for the sake of his body, which is the church. If that's a stretch for you, you're familiar with this passage. Let me remind you what Jesus says to Paul before, as he becomes a believer. He neared Damascus on his journey. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me, that's important, church. That pronoun, me, Was Paul persecuting the body and person of Jesus? No. He was persecuting Christians. He wasn't wasn't beating on Jesus. He wasn't stoning Jesus. He 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 was persecuting the followers of Jesus, but Jesus so identify identifies himself with those followers that Saul, Saul was persecuting. Jesus so identifies with you and your trials and your tribulations and your sufferings that he is vicariously present in them and says to those who are outside the church, who are persecuting believers, that you are persecuting me when they, those outside the church, persecute or bring afflictions or trials upon us. Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, in case you didn't get what I'm trying to say. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Jesus so identifies with the suffering of his people. And so the final point of of what Paul wants, what we should be praying that our hearts shift and our wants and desires is to make known that the trials And sufferings of Christians are predestined and purposeful. They are designed to change us and shape us so that we would have peace in them and gain victory in Christ through them. C.S. Lewis will close with this quote. He's got this correspondence going with a woman named Mrs. Van Dusen. 
And she writes about this topic. She's suffering. We, I don't know, we don't know what it is. We don't have her letter specifically. She is in, in suffering and trials. He writes, Dear Mrs. Van Dusen, it is very remarkable, or would be if we did not know that God arranges things, that you should write about our vicarious sufferings when another correspondent has recently written on the same matter. It's interesting that you're writing on this matter, in case you're not following him here, that someone else has written me about on the vicarious sufferings in the, in the sense that Jesus identifies so closely that he says, why are you persecuting me when Saul is persecuting Christians before he's a believer? He goes on. He's basically doing pastoral counsel here in letter form. He's shepherding. He's doing Tim, what Timothy did when he went to Thessalonica. C.S. Lewis, he writes, I have not a word to say against the doctrine that our Lord suffers in all the sufferings of his people. See Acts 9, verse 6. C.S. Lewis writes, we just looked at Acts 9 on the roads to Damascus. Or that when we willingly accept what we suffer for others and offer it to God on their behalf, then it may be united with his sufferings and in him may help to their redemption or even that of others whom we do not dream of. In other words, Mrs. Van Dusen, you're experiencing this suffering and you don't see the end game. You don't see what's going on here. But God not only wants to change you, but it sounds like whatever she's suffering for in her life, it's going to contribute to the help and maybe the redemption of someone else. So hang in there. C.S. Lewis being a Timothy. So that it is not in vain. So that your suffering and pain and trials are not in vain. The enemy wins if they're in vain. Our suffering and trials and persecutions are intended to be redemptive, to change us, so that it is not in vain, though, of course, we must not count on seeing it work out exactly as we, in our present ignorance, might think best. The key text for this view is Colossians 1.24. We just looked at it. it. Is it not, after all, one more application of the truth that we are all members of one another? I wish I had known more when I wrote The Problem of Pain. I love the humility here. He's like, yeah, I didn't really include this in my book that I wrote about pain. I didn't know this. I didn't know this, these difficult truths that are in the scriptures when I wrote my book. God bless you all. Be sure that grace, I love he capitalizes grace. I'm going to start capitalizing grace. He's talking about supernatural grace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Be sure that grace flows into you and out of you, and through you, in all sorts of ways. And no, this is radical, no faithful submission to pain in yourself or in another will be wasted. Yours ever, C.S. Lewis. He's wanting to encourage Mrs. Van Dusen in her trials. He's doing what Timothy was doing on behalf of this ministry team. It's what God calls us to do when we're in relationship with other believers and we see them struggling to encourage them to have peace in the midst of their redemption. What is it that you want? What are the longings in your heart? Cannonball runs Super Bowl victories, even our team winning. These, these things, well, the cannonball run is illegal and dangerous, so don't do that. But, but a lot of these things are, are, are just so short 
of the durable joy of how our creator intended us to live in Christ. And so we need to guard our hearts, the wellspring of life, and see what we're desiring and see what the followers of Christ were desiring in the first century. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, all of our hearts are defective aside from Jesus, including Paul's. So help us not to worship Paul and Timothy and Silas, and yet their hearts were beating so hard. Their desires were so in line with the gospel and caring for other people. They had an other orientation to their lives. Their deepest longings and desires were to know Christ, to love others. And maybe the thing that's blown me away the most in this chapter is your journaling this week, as you're journaling and praying, I pray that you would over this passage, congregation, what, what is it that hits you this week? What hit me this week is, is this crown of joy, of this reunion joy in heaven. God, give me, give me and give us as a church that desire that we would, we would have people that we shared the gospel with, that we're going to have this reunion joy with in the new heavens and the new earth. Give us longings for that and longings for so many other things that we don't long for. We pray in Jesus' name.